We're going to look at those verses that we read a little bit earlier from Mark chapter 16, the first eight verses. So uh, please go ahead and turn there if you don't mind. What a wonderful theme in our worship this morning of being risen indeed. And I've entitled this message, the sermon, Indeed, that little word, indeed. So all the preparation for today has really paid off, and I just want to thank those that have led our worship um, to point us to this, to this place of considering that phrase. Well, thank you for having us this weekend. It's been a, a wonderful joy to be with you and a privilege for my family to be with Honey Ridge Baptist um, over this Easter and so I just want to thank you for that invitation. I hope you don't blame us for the rain. Um, we are struggling in Natal, and I hope that this rain passes soon. Please pray for us as we try to address some of the need in our own province when we return. So Clint started this morning by saying, He is risen. And the reply is? He is risen indeed. It's famous among Baptist churches. And I always wondered why we use the word indeed. Well, this is why. The meaning of the word is Truly, it can be translated certainly, or there are synonyms that mean definitely, or really, or actually. Jesus has risen actually and really. Truly, he has risen. So what are the implications of Jesus rising from the dead then for us? What does is, what is this doctrine influence in our lives even today? What is the importance of Jesus bodily resurrection, you may ask, because that has been mentioned today too, and we focus on the bodily resurrection of our Lord today. I think it was Thursday evening, Clint mentioned in one of his introductions that really this narrative, the storyline starts at Christmas. And I appreciate that because it definitely does. Christmas marks the beginning of what theologians call Jesus' humiliation. Um, Another word that's used sometimes in, in textbooks is the word descent. Jesus' descent. And then this text from Mark chapter 16, the first eight verses, then marks Jesus' ascent or his exaltation. So I'll try and explain it this way. I don't want to give um, all the details necessarily, but Jesus, existing from eternity past, then becomes the Logos, which is um, the famous passage, John chapter 1, speaking of the Logos, where the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that was his initial step down from glory. And I think of descent and his humiliation as this, like a bunch of steps that lead downward. And some of these steps would include the incarnate one, the Holy, Holy Spirit conceived, the virgin birth would be one of those steps as well. Suffering servant would be another step. The last few steps of the staircase would be crucified. He would step down dead. And then he would step one last step into the grave, and that's as low as he would go. And then scholars have said, all the powers of earth and heaven, all the powers of earth and hell combined, could not keep Christ the prisoner. Amen? The grave could not hold Jesus, and so he steps out of the grave. Today we celebrate that, and he begins to rise the staircase again. And the first step up would be resurrection, and then ascending, ascension, to glory, his session, theologians say we were seated at the right hand of the Father in that position of authority, interceding, and then obviously the final step would be to be final judge of the universe. This is his descent and his ascent. And this is a principle of Scripture, is it not? 
When we think of scriptures like Matthew 23, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's a principle. It sounds very similar to this, you know, the opposite idea of descent and ascent. 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So all of these things align scripturally. They sound very familiar to us, pointing to, again, God's sovereignty over these things, his plan and purpose in these things. Now, these eight verses that were beautifully read earlier as part of our journey through the scriptures there in our worship really have a focal point. And if you look at the book of Mark, this is the focal point of the entire gospel. It comes to one place, and the focal point of these eight verses being the focal point of Mark's gospel is resurrection. Resurrection. Now, I was going to have my wife come up and read these eight verses for us again, but I've instead asked her to come and pray. So won't you bow with me as, um, as Amber comes to pray for us and commit our time in the word um, to the Lord. Thanks, Ams. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so very grateful that you took those steps for us, that you descended from your place of joy and delight and complete contentment and happiness Um, And you made that descent into a human body, ultimately into the grave. But God, we are so very glad to be here rejoicing today because you are not still dead. You are alive. And we are so very glad that you rose from the grave and we are here to celebrate you today. Father, we pray that you would um, illuminate your word as Trent preaches today and that we would be receptive in our hearts to hear the message that um, you have preached through your word to each and every one of us. And we love that it's a living word and that it's going to breathe truth into all of our lives, God. So I just pray that we would be sensitive to that and that we would enjoy this fellowship that we have that is really unique to a body of believers like this. So thank you so much for this time together, and we are so very glad that you are risen indeed. Amen. Amen. So if I had to look at the context of this passage, which is found within a broader context here, I would say that the context is this by way of application. We need to be permanently grave ready. So the reality we've looked at for the last couple of days is that there is a grave ready for us, right? No one's going to be avoiding our grave. We're going to face a funeral one day. But the question I want to ask of you as we start today is, are you grave ready? Now, this is how it ties into our theological belief For a believer, for a Christian, the grave is a refuge. Now, I know it sounds morbid, but really think about this. The grave is a refuge, according to Scripture, according to what we believe as as Christians. Dying then becomes a gateway to resurrection. And resurrection, the beginning of glory. That's how it all ties together. We must, therefore, prepare for the grave. We must, therefore, prepare for glory. In preparing for your grave... You prepare for glory. Just like Jesus um, is referred to in the scriptures as being a pioneer, he pioneered a trail, he blazed the trail, cutting through the jungle of sin and all of its consequences of death. He did this, blazing the trail to a destination, the destination being glory. In heaven there now lives, and this is what we celebrate today, he now lives a human body glorified. Therefore, Hope remains for us that it is possible for another human being to be raised to eternal existence. That's why it matters to consider these things on Easter Sunday. 
So I want to give you three preparations. Three preparations for glory. Three preparations for your resurrection. Number one, prepare for your resurrection through devotion. Prepare for resurrection through devotion. Take a pen and write these down somewhere, and maybe you can remember some of these things just in meditating what Easter means, 2022. These are the same ladies that were at the cross on, their, you know, on the day Jesus died. They're on their way to the tomb. The scenario is that the Sabbath has passed, that Saturday has passed. It's very early on Sunday morning. That's what this text says. After sunrise. So if I had to work out all the days, I find that Jesus has been in the grave from Friday evening all the way to Sunday morning at this stage, just after sunrise. According to scholars, in a Jerusalem climate, decomposition is well on its way. And so this was not embalming. It would have been too late to embalm a body. And besides, Jewish practice was not to embalm bodies. So I asked myself, well, what are they doing? What are they doing this Sunday morning so early in the morning? Why did they get up so early to do what they are doing and prepare the way they did? And the answer is love. This is love. This is a, a picture of sincere devotion. Driven by love, they got up early. Their mission was, as some have suggested, to wash and perfume Jesus' broken face. You might say, well, why do we need all these gory details about what's happening on the Sunday morning? Well, we need the gory details to see the measure of the devotion, to see the, the, the nature of the devotion that is expressed to Jesus. I believe there are times where love does just because it loves. Amen? That's the only reason. Love does just because it loves. Sometimes there are obstacles to our devotion. Notice in the passage, a huge obstacle. And the author takes us down a, a, a linguistic journey to paint the picture of this large stone. And the stone represents a, a big stone of death also lurking in their minds. This is a, you know, I can't believe what just happened yesterday, or the day before yesterday, in the minds of these women. There's, there's still confusion that lurks probably in their minds. I want to step aside and say, by the way, Notice that there's no conception of resurrection in this text. There's no idea of resurrection among these women. So to think that this was a made-up story of resurrection being made up is ludicrous because this idea didn't even feature on this morning at all. They were worried about the stone. They were worried about how to open the tomb. So there's, there's hindrances to our devotion of obstacles, and there's also distractions to our devotion, which is seen in the passage of worry, Ladies were worried. Who's going to open the grave? Who's going to open the tomb for us? But their obstacles and their distractions fade as they look up. This is what the Bible says. And they see the stone, which was very large, rolled away. And so I want to make a little application in the beginning of this message to say, as you prepare for your resurrection through devotion, only God can roll your stone away. I don't know what that is, what the obstacle to your devotion is, what the distraction to your devotion is, but you do this morning. You know what stands in the way of your expression of genuine affection to God and to Christ through service and other things, but generally through your affections being you know, given to the Lord and shown in various ways. Uh, we often say in our church, and I think this is, not, this is not original to me for sure, but your time, your treasure, and your talents are the three nice categories to package up what your devotion ought to look like. And so whatever is in the way, only God can roll away the stone. And as God opens away, my challenge to you this morning, this Easter, would be to love him radically. 
So God may roll that stone away as you pray to him today. Lord, take away that distraction. Take away that obstacle so that I can love you properly. And when he does, my challenge to you would be to love him radically. Prepare for your grave that way. Secondly, prepare for your resurrection through revelation. Through revelation. Verses 5 and 6. They enter the tomb. And there is a young, valiant man dressed in white. And he's there in the tomb. And... I'll ask myself another question of this passage. Well, what's so important about this young, shiny messenger that was sent from heaven with messages from God? Well, when I thought about it long and hard and tried to put the pieces of this text together and what he said specifically, I landed saying that he is the link between the event of resurrection and the woman. You see, The resurrection itself was not seen by human eyes. Think about this. We saw an empty tomb. But the actual resurrection is not being seen with human eyes. But the woman had very human eyes. And when we approach the passage, we have very human eyes. And the link between the two is this young, shiny messenger. And he's most definitely the focus of Mark's gospel. You might say, no, well, Jesus is. Obviously, Jesus is in terms of the message that the messenger brings. But the focus of the narrative leads up to this point where the The young, shiny messenger has something to say. He's the visible revelation. He's the only explanation that we have of the event, resurrection. Resurrection is not fabrication. Resurrection is not delusion. As some have suggested, trying to tear the Bible apart. Resurrection is the truth revealed to us. The actions of God are not always self-evident, if we really think about how God acts in this world. Often, actions of God in the Scriptures, but actions in our own life, need to be accompanied by words of revelation. And so here we have this messenger, and he said very important things for us to take heart in. first phrase that he used was, don't be alarmed. I'm not too sure what he looked like, but I know it was something spectacular because most people that react to messengers in the Bible need to be calmed down. And so this is the first thing out of the messenger's mouth is, don't stress, take it easy. And this is word, these are words of reassurance. Then he said, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, which are words of familiarity. Then he said, who was crucified. This would be a word of humility or humiliation. He was crucified two days ago. He has risen, words of interpretation, like I just said. Interpretation of why the tomb is empty. He has risen, explains what has just taken place. He is not here, are words of hope. See the place where he laid, are words of assurance, because you can have a look for yourself. Go and have a look for yourself. The empty tomb has no factual value, if you really think about it. It only begs one question, what happened to the body of Jesus? And some have said, well, the body of Jesus was stolen. If, if, if he was, you can think of the two camps that would have stolen the body and how ludicrous this idea would have been and why it would have been very important for the disciples to bring the body to, well, not the disciples, but the Jewish leaders to bring the body to light. You can think about all those things. So stealing the body is not a, not a solution for the problem. The ladies were in the wrong tomb is another suggestion made. But that's ludicrous because they were there at the crucifixion and obviously were part of this whole burial scene. Jesus never died, is another suggestion by some, that Jesus never really died. He revived himself in the tomb and then crawled out of the tomb somehow. Didn't really die. 
But Mark's certainty rests only in one word of revelation. Of revelation. Hence my point. To prepare for our resurrection, we need to do so through revelation because the certainty of Mark leans upon it. One word, just like we looked at on Good Friday, one word, to telestai, means, you know, what it does. To telestai, it is finished. Now there's one word again, he has risen. Ergothe in the Greek. And Bruno said, the whole of our gospel truth rests on this one word, he has risen, one phrase, like an inverted pyramid. Such is the importance of this one Greek word revealed to us. He has risen. Now why would I bring this up? Why would I share this with you? Because revelation, particularly this revelation, demands a response from the reader. This revelation demands a response from you, a listener today. Those that have heard the truth revealed that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, explaining the empty tomb, are now in a position where they have to make a decision, either to trust the word revealed, the truth, or not. This particular word forces us into a position where we have to make that choice. Now I want to zoom out again into the bigger context. The day before, which was Saturday, the Sabbath, as I understand it, was the full day that Jesus spent in darkness. In the darkness of the grave. And so I started to think about the darkness in our world, and I thought about those that were left outside of the darkness, left in despair for a minute. I was just trying to immerse myself in the events of Easter 2,000 years ago, and I thought about the disciples and how they must have felt. Man, that, that, that crucifixion was pretty real, and that death was pretty real. What, what now? Our, our leader, our victorious leader is now gone. Family were on the outside. We know how Jesus' family reacted to his ministry. Godly women at the cross, and that's what the focus is here of the last chapter of Mark. They're on the outside. So I'm thinking particularly of individuals. So Mary, for example, she's on the outside of the tomb, and she's, she's trying to work through a, a mother's heart that has been crushed by grief. I thought of Peter and how he's got this continuous, nagging guilt and probably what's looping in his mind is, I can't believe I denied him. What was I thinking? I can't believe that I denied Jesus. What now? That I ended, he ended, his life has come to an end, and my last chapter with him was denial. What about John, the closest you know, friend of Jesus, as we understand it from Scripture, and his heavy loss? Jesus was my closest friend, and now he's gone. I mean, this really is a picture. If you put this all together, this is a picture of our world. You speak to people, you find human misery everywhere. You find hopelessness everywhere and meaninglessness. Man, people striving after all sorts of things for temporary pleasure. And then at the end of the day, just sitting down in their recliner and just, decide, just discovering that life is absolutely meaningless when you put it all together. But now, consider this passage. Blazing through the darkness comes revelation. And I love the fact that it's a bright, shiny messenger that brings it because it's this radiant light out of the darkness with this one word of revelation. He is risen, Egerthe. He is risen to break the darkness up. 
And we are found in a position, hearing the word of revelation, being exposed to the word of revelation, we're in a position where we're either going to believe it or remain in unbelief. That's the crossroads that we find ourselves at and anyone else that is exposed to this revelation of Easter 2,000 years ago. Now back to the focal point, faith. The focal point, faith. Mark doesn't tell us when Jesus rose. He doesn't tell us what, by what means he rose. He doesn't tell us what form he took when he rose. But what Mark does tell us is where Jesus is. He's risen. And he tells us one little detail that I find so amazing to jumpstart faith from unbelief. He says, oh, and Jesus has gone to Galilee. You might think, well, okay. And I'm sure most have glanced over that in their quiet times. But if you really think about it, this is the culmination, the climax of Mark's entire gospel. Every detail has been carefully chosen by the author, and he includes this detail about Galilee. Why? Well, this is why. Because if Jesus is going to honor his word spoken beforehand with a detail, surely he's going to be trustworthy in everything that's said, right? So you go back to Mark 14, and you find these words where Jesus said, After I am raised up, can't believe it. Verse 28, Mark 14, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And now all of a sudden, the woman on this occasion, and the disciples will hear very soon, they, decide, they discover, oh, Jesus said this, and it's come true. Maybe everything else is true as well, that he is raised from the dead indeed. Indeed. So what are you going to do with this, church family, today? Those listening in online and here today as visitors, maybe? What are you going to do with this word of revelation that he has risen from the dead? Are you going to trust his word or not? So we can prepare for our resurrection through devotion. We can prepare for our own resurrection one day through revelation by trusting the word of God. Thirdly, we can prepare for your resurrection, our resurrection, through intervention. Through intervention. William Lane spoke of these events of Easter, and he said, This is God's decisive intervention in raising Christ from the dead. This Easter, we must, we must acknowledge God's intervention in these events of history. And more than just acknowledge them, because many do and leave church unchanged, we need to appreciate them. We need to be affected by the intervention of God in the events of Easter. These women were scared stiff. The Bible goes to lengths to describe that they were literally speechless. I believe they took time. They needed some time to just kind of gain their composure and pull themselves together a little bit before they could even speak after this occasion, probably because of their you know, exposure to the messenger, but more so to the message that had been shared with them. And the word that's used is very strong in the Greek, tromos, that speaks of this, the woman really speechless on this, on this, in these moments. They were given one thing to do, these women, and that it's quite simple, actually, and probably because of their response, the messenger brought it simple, saying, go tell. I'm encouraged by that. Go tell. In verse 8, we read that they didn't tell anybody. <laughs> and so I, I, just in my meditations in the passage, I was thinking, this really is the last straw on the haystack of failure that we've discovered through the Easter weekend, haven't we? Think about this. All the failure that we've been exposed to this weekend is human inadequacy, 
There's a lack of understanding. There's weakness, denial, silence, fear, depression, despair. If you read Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, there's even hints there of people that had moved on with life after Jesus' death already. I mean, the, the, the details of the text give us that picture that Jesus and his crucifixion was last week's news. People are just trucking on with life. Got new things to, to worry about today. When we put this all together, we find this huge stack of failure. And the joy for me is to come to this passage and say to you, praise God, the end is not based on human performance. The end of the story is not based on human performance. God has power over our failure. Glory to his name. He is acting all over the world. The end of the story is in his hands. God intervened here and he intervenes in our history so that he gets the glory. He did it. And he is involved today. It's his story, our history. So I want to end with a few encouragements for you in terms of leaning and trusting in God's intervention believing in what has been said about Christ and all the, the, what would flow out of it for us, the implementation of that for us, the effect of it. Give you three little things. Forgiveness. Be encouraged by this. In terms of God's intervention, forgiveness. You notice how when the messenger spoke to the ladies, he said, go and tell his disciples. I'm encouraged by that because they're still called disciples. I don't know if you remember Thursday evening, we left in a very, very somber way. I mean, we, the last thing said on Thursday evening was, and they fled. May I just add the little suffix, into darkness. They fled into darkness, and still now, after resurrection, they are considered to be disciples. I'm comforted by that. And notice that Peter's name is mentioned per- personally, like, uniquely. Um, he's mentioned by name, and if you study your Bible, you'll realize that this is the subsequent mention of Peter's name after his denial. I'm comforted by that. He's not excluded from the disciples. Jesus' forgiveness, by, by way of the messenger, Jesus' forgiveness covers those who abandoned, and it covers those who denied him. God's intervention. Secondly, notice immutability of Jesus, the immutability of Jesus. I know it's a big word, but let's, let's try and swallow it together. He doesn't change. Jesus is the same person after resurrection that he was before. Now, I'm surprised by that because I was thinking that he would rise from the dead and be kind of like full of himself. Right? This huge victory won. But no, when Jesus speaks and he, his message comes to, to others, we discover Jesus to be tender and gentle and we find him to be loving and kind and caring even after this infinitely great victory. Be encouraged thirdly by his endless call. Jesus' endless call. He didn't fire his followers. <laughs> Relief. He didn't fire his disciples or recruit a new team to complete the mission. Which he had every right to do. They abandoned ship. These followers were the ones who took the gospel, the news of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus to the entire world. You can study it. 
starting locally and moving abroad, these are the ones that would give their lives for this cause. Don't tell me resurrection isn't true. We've been given the same task. According to Scripture, we've been given a simple task. Two words, go tell. So may I encourage you this Easter to speak up. Gain your composure. Put your thoughts together this Easter and speak up. I do realize that something has to happen in your heart before this takes place. And it's been recorded by various scholars, like Don Carson. He said, we know from the other Gospels that it took a personal meeting with the risen Christ to change a private emotion to a living faith that would witness. You see where I'm going with this? There needs to be a personal meeting with the risen Christ before somebody becomes a missionary and can go tell sincerely. And we find this actual witness in John 20 verse 18 where the disciples now would say boldly, I have seen the Lord. I've seen the Lord, the personal meeting of the risen Christ. Warren Wiersbe said the exact same thing. It's almost like they were using the same source maybe. It's one thing to hear the message. Okay, We're talking about the messenger and the message that was given. He is risen. It's one thing to hear the message. It's quite something else to meet the risen Lord personally. So it's one thing to come to church and say, He is risen indeed, after the worship leader says, He is risen. But it's an entirely different thing to now leave this building and become part of those that would share Christ. Listen to this, this quote one more time. It's one thing to hear the message, quite something else, to meet the risen Lord personally. When you meet him, you will have something to share with others. Amen? Yes, you will. Yes, you will. Go tell. So my big question this Easter, as we finish up this morning, is have you encountered the resurrected Christ? Not just the facts about him, as I've explained today, versus stolen bodies and other But have you encountered the resurrected Christ? Because if you have, if you have, your life and your witness will argue continually for the only real hope this world needs desperately. You know what that hope is? He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for, again, revelation given to us today from your word. Lord, it's it's so approachable. We can come here and we can discover human failure and understand that we have failed you, Lord. We We can touch these events and we can learn from them and be guided by them and encouraged by them, Lord. I want to pray, Lord, that as we come to consider what we've learned from this passage, evidentially of your resurrection, that you would mobilize your church to go tell. Give us courage. Give us boldness. For those that maybe have never encountered the risen Lord, may today be that day. As they discover from your word the revelation of the truth. Lord, may may men and women be saved. Call men and women in salvation and call men and women to serve. And I pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless.